0: It's not television or Hollywood anyway. This is radio. It's just that there's no such thing as just radio anymore. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
1: True. Um, Oops! Did I just electrocute everybody with my my wire? That Um, that speaker might work if you want to. Let me see. I I can't (laughs) think what he's got in the other room there. yeah, take a peek in there and see if there's something. Can't think.
0: So I just heard that you've written a book.
1: I have. It's yeah. coming out in September. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's a it's weird. It's the first time. Yeah, I just, I just wrote a wrote book. Did you really? Yeah. So what here. is yours called?
0: It's called Speaking of Faith. It's,
1: um, oh, that's great. Can I just yeah. set this off camera? Like but I that? know what you mean. It's a whole new away? world. No. surprisingly. Okay. It's just it's just it's this whole new world. Yeah. yeah. No. Uh, Would you like well, to? You are
0: living with a veteran. So. me? You're living with a veteran.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. I learned a lot. <laughs> oh, it even looks color coordinated. That's wonderful. <laughs> just a little bit stuff. Krista's gonna be wearing headphones. Would you like to wear headphones or do you just we don't need to Alright. Okay. Not yeah, right. unless you think we no, okay. need to. Right. Nice so. to meet you. Christy. Krista. Christa,
2: Christa. 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 Mm-hmm. you are Colleen Steck. Colleen, how are you? Good. Nice good. to see how's you. you. Trent you. how's it going? Do you spell it C uh, H. Do you spell it C- okay,
1: Ah, wasn't even close. <laughs> okay. I just know somebody who spells it that way, yeah. He's mm-hmm. a really famous worship leader in Australia. Really? Darlene Check. check. Oh, okay. Isn't that She's, what you said, Check? Check, check. 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 ah. In the front. Ah, missed that part. Yeah.
2: Well, actually, Darlene has a Z in the front.
1: Oh, yeah, I was spelling it CZ, but it's Z. Z-C.
2: It's Z C H.
1: Oh, I got it reversed. It's one of those. So we had to turn your.
2: That's okay. I don't need them. That's fine. Yes, we are. Are you local or where? Where? where Saint Paul.
0: Uh, we are right. based in Saint Paul. It's a national program, though.
2: It's oh, fantastic! Two hundred public radio
0: stations. Well, our
2: son married a Minneapolis girl. Oh, did he? Yeah. What's her name? Jamie, Jamie Jamie Witherspoon. She teaches she was a witherspoon. second grade. She's a second grade teacher. Do
1: they live there? No, they live here. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, but no, she's she can trace and you know somebody back to the um, Mayflower or something. You know, there was a Witherspoon who right. signed the. It's a,
0: yeah, it's a great old name.
1: Yeah, so she's <laughs> she's got that heritage. Uh-huh.
0: can't, there's a lot we can't talk about because of that. Sure. all the questions I wanted to ask you would take days. Several hours. So, so what I want to do <laughs> is uh, we have an hour and we have an hour long program, which is great luxury in broadcasting. That's a but lot of time. Fabulous. Um, but it means, you know, we have about 45 minutes of interview, yeah. 40 minutes of interview. Um, so what I want to do is talk about. Thanks. Uh, Thanks, Paulette. A little bit about. So let me just tell you briefly, you know, we we're on. 200 public radio stations and spreading. This was a very big deal and uh, kind of a hard thing to get off the ground to get a program on religion. On yeah. The radio. So it's fairly yeah. new. We're doing really well. Um, we have hundreds of thousands of podcasters as well. Our
2: that's audience, great. The, so they're podcasting oh, it yeah, too? Yeah. Oh, that's good.
0: We have a fantastic website. The um, Our listeners... You know, half a million and growing Mm -hmm. are everything from devout evangelical Christians, Catholics, Muslims, Jews, and lots of atheists and agnostics.
2: Everybody. Yeah. 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 Um, It's what you'd figure. (laughs) That's called America. That's exactly
0: right. Um, We have lots of friends in common, including Rich Mao, who I think Mm -hmm. is one of the people who... He's a good guy. He's a great friend of mine, and he's been on the program several times, and... um, and he was also one of the people who encouraged me, along with Jack Templeton, to interview the two of you together. But Jack's a good guy, really, too. I always felt I wanted to interview mm-hmm. the two of you together. So I'm glad we finally did
1: Well, one. buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah, so what, so what I'd like to do is um, s- spend a little bit of time just talking about kind of where you came from and, you know, your, your background, how, how this life of yours uh, <laughs> Got going.
2: I was born a poor black <laughs> child.
0: And I'm gonna and I I also know that you The
2: jerk, you remember and that and movie of you know, Steve heard. Martin? Steve Martin.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh no, that's her. exactly
2: surely he's not gonna say that. Ooh, ooh, don't look down. There's a lobster on your plate.
0: Are you Okay. Um uh, well, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I, re- where I really want to get and spend a lot of time is, is where all this is taken, you know, you beyond purpose-driven life, where your ministry has gone, and yeah. your theology continues to sure. develop, and the way you see the world and what's important to you, because I, I sense that that really is dynamic.
2: Oh, yeah. Constantly um, growing, changing, and, mm-hmm. the, you know, the U-turn started about four years ago. Are
1: you taping?
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, wait just a minute. I didn't think so. Let's talk yeah. about what you had for breakfast. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's like I didn't know if we were taking that if you wanted. to. Okay. Had, but let, let's let's
0: not. Let's not start with the um, breakfast.
1: My daughter fixed yeah. it for me. I went oh, to see the she? grandkids before I oh, left. Oh, how many grandchildren do you have? I have three. I have a um, four, almost two, and a one month. Oh, wow. So I dropped by to see She's
2: them. The best and looking grandmother in the nation. Oh, oh
0: yeah. Wow. And I'm sure the grandchildren are also the most beautiful. They absolutely yeah. perfect,
2: <laughs> and they're all perfect. above average. Like, like, that's right, like Wilbigan. Well yep. Yes,
1: yes, they are beautiful. <laughs> so, Just had breakfast with the grandkids. Mm-hmm. Do they live here? They do. Just about that's ten great. minutes away from. All ah, right, total serendipity. Yeah. I never expected that that's our kids would blessing. grow up and live near us, yeah. but they do, at least mm-hmm. for now. So, mm-hmm. I'm really grateful. Yeah.
0: Do you do you have any questions of me about the program or?
2: How long have you been been with it?
0: Um, I started it. You did? I first uh pitched the idea in
2: 1998.
0: Wow. And it became monthly in um 2001.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And weekly in 2003. Wow. And then you kind of you 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 conquer public radio one station at a time. Yeah. And so but we really are on we're on in New York City three times on the weekend. Mm. We're just heading on into Boston and Washington this month and um Run you know in Los Barbara
2: from NPR?
0: Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, she is does. It? She does religion news, and she, I don't. And
2: she, I think she's on the justice beat or something like that. But she oh, has, has she moved? It. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't,
2: think so. mm-hmm. I but, don't
0: do religion news. Um, mm-hmm. I do um, in-depth conversations gotcha. and actually care about theology. Wow. And, um, and so I think it's complementary to the religion reporting, which is getting better all the time.
2: Wow, that's great. Yeah. If you care about theology, we can. Really go and delve into the halzgashik sacerdotalism. Cut yourself.
1: I think I'll leave that to you. Uh, that <laughs> <too>.
0: <laughs> we can do that if you want. <laughs> Although I don't allow theologians. I have an MDiv from Yale Divinity School. Oh, really? From Yale? Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so I ha- I come to this with the theological Tim has a theological
2: education. My son going to Yale Divinity right now. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Okay. All right. Well, then let's
2: go. Did you ever have Miroslav or anything?
0: I love Miroslav. He's a great friend, and he's been on the show. Unbelievable. I I interviewed Miroslav at the National Cathedral, and we made a program out of it. Yeah. he's a great friend. Well, you know,
2: he's the leading authority on uh, reconciliation, and that's part of the peace plan. Yeah. The P of peace is promote reconciliation. Yeah. He
0: wasn't at at Yale when I was there, but we uh became friends later. Um, So uh, let's talk about... um, So, Rick, you were in high school from 1969 to 1972,
2: is that right? Yeah, that's the hippie years in Northern California. Uh, Yeah, and
0: I've even read that you were a techie for Janis Joplin when she visited.
2: Oh, I I did light shows (laughs) at my local high school, and all of the San Francisco bands came north. Yeah, Actually, I I lived, part of my years in the 60s, I lived in the Bay Area, in Sausalito, San Francisco Bay Area. And then... uh, the second half of the 60s, I lived up in rural northern California in Mendocino County.
0: So you were where the action was. And
2: <laughs> and all of the hippies, when they left Tate Ashbury, moved to Mendocino. <laughs> I think I think grass is still the top cash crop of Mendocino County. <laughs> all the earth mothers moved in there, and it's still kind of, if you go there, you can still find the 60s remnants.
0: Yeah. Well, so what I wanted to ask you is, you know, how growing up in that era, if you've thought about how that era imprinted, you know, who you've become and what you care about now.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, just about a year uh, after the summer of love, a lot of those uh, hippies started becoming Christians. There was a thing called the Jesus right, Movement. Right, right. And uh, that movement really is what kind of turned my direction uh, toward the Lord and toward ministry. Hmm. I uh, I was always interested in making a difference with my life. And so I was in student government from sixth grade through my freshman year in college there wasn't some year I wasn't president of something in fact one year i i led about 500 kids to cut school one day in march on the courthouse so that was that was pretty typical in fact i was actually recruited by the SDS at UC Berkeley to come there and i, I didn't end up going to school there but uh, the summer of uh, 1970 i was working as a lifeguard at a camp in northern california and that's where my Uh, conversion took place Mm -hmm. i met some people who had been involved in the jesus movement and they just seemed real it wasn't the bible that convinced me it was they have something in their lives that i don't have right and uh, that was the the turning point but you know so it was uh, Hmm. a lot of rock and roll uh, days Uh, you know i remember when credence clearwater used to be called the gollywogs and uh, Janice Joplin was unknown. Right, and, right, right. So. Were
1: you growing up in the same period? Are you about the same age? We're exactly the same age. Mm-hmm. He's uh, 11 days older than I am. Oh. Yeah. I say he's really lucky because I didn't date younger men. So uh, <laughs> He just made it in it under the wire. Um, <laughs> but I grew up in, in Southern California. While well, mm-hmm. he was in Northern California, I was growing up in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And both our dads are pastors, so we yeah, grew okay. up in, in a really close-knit family, Very really close involved knit. in church from yeah. the time we were were babies, and um, while he was being a rock and roll, I was more of a Glenn Campbell, um, Simon and Garfunkel uh, kind of gal. But yeah. um,
2: Rod McEwen.
1: Oh yeah, I Rod oh. McEwen. Still could listen to Rod McEwen. Um, <laughs> we can do a little reading of Rod. That's awesome. Well, that would be awesome. awesome. Be awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now, don't you be making fun of Rod McEwen. <laughs> now, so then, in 1980, is that right? The two of you rolled into saddleback is December of seventy nine. Yeah. December of seventy nine. Yeah, right. With a small child, a baby, four. four month, month old. old baby. Okay.
2: Mm-hmm. We had just I just finished my masters uh at uh, Southwestern Seminary. I did a master's there and a doctorate at Fuller and um we had no money, no members, no building, didn't know mm-hmm. a single person in the Saddleback Valley.
0: And, you know, when it, when we drive into here, into yeah. Lake Forest, is, this is Lake Forest, right, right. in Laguna Hills, yeah. it's now this sprawling suburb, houses, right.
1: there were barns.
0: stores everywhere. Right? There was
1: a barn right next to the high school where and we started. And that's it.
0: It was pretty empty. It was
1: green and this big old red barn out there next but, to Laguna but Hills But you'd high come school. here because you knew
0: it was about to fill up. You know, out. I had
2: done study when I was in seminary. I just decided that... Uh, I, I would. I, I had studied the 100 largest churches in America. I wrote to every one of them. And it was just on my own. It wasn't a class assignment. And I thought, what is it that makes a church healthy, mm-hmm. that one really impacts the community? And one of the characteristics is the pastor stays put. He's been there like 10, 20, 30 years. A, a congregation that gets a new leader every two or three years is like a family gets a new daddy every two or three right. years. The kids would be schizophrenic. Yeah. So I really... Told the Lord, I said, "I'll go anywhere in the world if you'll let me spend my entire life in one location." Okay. I really didn't care. Really, it was. so
0: you came here?
2: We made a forty-year intent- commitment. our uh-huh. We made a forty-year okay. commitment. I was twenty-five years old, mm-hmm. and we said, "Okay." Uh, <laughs> we had been, uh, we had gotten engaged, and right after we got engaged, I moved to Nagasaki, Japan, to teach English, and she moved to inner city Birmingham, Alabama, hmm. to uh, to work in an inner city church there.
0: In the seventies, then. In, yeah. in the seventies. 70-
2: Seventy-four. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, so when we got ready, we were about finishing seminary. I got out a map of the world, and we put it on the wall, and we started praying, and said, okay, we'll go anywhere. Really, we thought we were going to end up going back overseas, because we had both felt a call to do overseas work, but um, just felt like, no, that wasn't, that one where we were supposed to go. So I got out a map of the U.S., and I circled every major city outside of the South, because I figured there are plenty of churches in the South, you know, and they didn't. So I just circled Detroit, New York, Philadelphia, Denver, Phoenix, Albuquerque, and finally we narrowed it down to four areas on the West Coast: Seattle, San Francisco, San Diego, and Orange County.
0: Now, you then became one of the, you know, some of the innovators in what is now known as the megachurch phenomenon, yeah. along with people like Bill Hybels. Um, did you? At the time, did you know that you were setting out to create a megachurch? Were you using that language? Did you did you really have a vision of what it would be? I become? had never
2: heard the word megachurch. Well, I
0: don't think it probably had been coined. <laughs> no, it hadn't it had been invented. No. Too.
2: No. Uh, all we knew was we were going to one place for life. Okay. And uh, most churches and most organizations set their goals too low and try to achieve them too quickly. Okay. We need to set larger goals and then give the rest of your life for them and so we overestimate what we can do in five years but we underestimate what we can do in 20 or 30.
1: Hmm. We had some big dreams I mean we won't we deny that we yeah. Rick had visited um the Cho's largest church, church in the lo- world yeah in Korea right. I mean you were studying exactly what made for a vibrant and church. so we had big dreams we just we thought it would take we thought it would take those 40 years, right. yeah. you know, if it happened at all, it right. would take 40 years. Mm-hmm. Had no idea that it would grow as quickly as it did. Mm-hmm. Um, but we fully intended, we didn't tell people that because we were 25 years old. This was the first church Rick had pastored. You know, people would have looked askance if we had said, and we think, you know, we'll have 20,000 members someday. It's like, yeah, who are you kidding? <laughs> who you, do guys? you think you are? Yeah, pimply face yeah. little guy and, you know, scrowny yeah. little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we, we believe that that's what God was going to do. We just didn't know what happened so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, there is kind of a a contrast, or
0: maybe a paradox, that wouldn't make sense to a lot of people on the outside who mm. don't know how your church works. Mm. Um, which is to say, at the at one and the same time, it's a big size, right? It's mm. what do you have twenty thousand people on a typical a, on weekend? A twenty
2: thousand. There are over a hundred thousand names on the church. On the roll. roll. So yeah. so you're
0: talking big numbers. It's a city. Right, so and, I, and this is a, cam- a This mayor. is not just a church. This is a campus, <laughs> mayor Rick. right? And then at the same time, um, the community is really generated and sustained through small groups that you call cells,
2: right? Absolutely. So, there, so there's this. In fact, you're probably one of the only uh, interviewers or journalists who have ever understood what I'm talking. Yeah, what, no, as this because that really is the key most people miss what saddleback church or even other churches are about they see the big service on sunday that is uh-huh. the tip of the iceberg uh-huh. which is less than 2 or 3% of the church 95% of the icebergs under the water and what hap- what the church is is what happens during the week the over 3300 small groups that meet in homes in 95 cities across southern california from santa monica to carlsbad All right and the over 400 ministries reach out into the community, the, the Sunday morning service is simply a funnel. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's really the, it's what, it's the most visible, but it is honestly the least significant part of, and, of the church. And
0: I think that gets at another, um, you know, nuance of mm-hmm. of what makes your church work mm-hmm. and grow, which I think is not easily understandable. I said that it, Entry is easy, right? I mean, you create a worship experience that feels very comfortable and inviting to people um, and, and perhaps quite different from churches they grew up yeah. in. And yet, once they're part of the community, it's a big commitment. You're actually asking We're a lot of people. We're constantly
2: turning up the commitment. Kay can talk about this. She's just written a book on commitment about this. But uh, we, uh, we got this idea from Jesus. Huh. When Jesus uh, is walking down the street, the very first thing he ever says a uh, couple of uh, guys say, "Hey, Lord, where are you going?" And he says, "Come and see." It's yeah. the very first thing Jesus said. Come and see. It's just like check me out. There's no commitment. It's just check me out. So
0: some people criticize you for, <clears throat> sorry, for watering it down, yeah. <clears throat> simplifying the gospel, watering yeah. down the gospel. And yeah. what you're saying is, in in a, I mean, are you saying in a sense you you do that in as a as a very first impression? Well, or in the or... first
2: place simplifying and making it shallow are two very different things. Simple is not shallow. Uh, Simple is not simplistic. Mm -hmm. Simple is not superficial. Simple means understandable. Einstein said, you don't really understand something unless you can say it in a simple way. It's easy to to confuse people. You know, I've got an earned doctorate in theology and I could use, throw the words around in Greek and Hebrew and and confuse them. They go, wow, that guy's deep. And actually I was just muddying it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The more important thing is, is it understandable? So I'm a translator. Okay. And so when we talk about building a service, the message is often not comfortable. It does require commitment. What we're talking about is the way you greet people. It's basically just being nice to people. Okay,
0: well, it's taking it's, the barriers down. It's taking it's the barriers right. down. It's that ancient Christian barriers.
1: virtue of hospitality. Exactly. Isn't it? Well, mm-hmm. and people used to have there were dress codes, and people would say, "Well, I really can't go to church because I don't have the right clothes," mm-hmm. or, um, or "I don't know the
2: right words." Oh, yeah, I don't
1: know the right words to say, or "I, I don't." I'll be embarrassed because I don't know what I'm supposed to do at this particular point in time. Mm-hmm. And so, really, all we try to do is say, "What keeps people from coming? They're afraid of God. They're." Um, they have misperceptions, they think that they've got to act and behave a certain way if they can even walk into church. So we just tried to say, what can we do that will make people feel relaxed enough so that when the word of God is preached, when the, the songs of worship are sung, there's not these huge barriers erected around them that keep them from hearing it and listening it and, and absorbing it into their heart. When mm-hmm.
2: we first got here 27 years ago, Kay and I spent 12 weeks just talking to people. Before we ever said a word, we just listened. We talked to literally thousands of people. Just
0: going door to door. Going door to door
2: and just talking. And what I discovered is most people weren't anti-God. They just didn't like church. Okay? It's Mm -hmm. not like, Jesus, I got no problem with Jesus. Right. I just don't like religion. I don't like the rules, the regulations, the rituals, and it doesn't make sense to me. And if I went to a church where I got something on Sunday that actually helped me on Monday morning, I'd probably go. But it wasn't that they were atheist, It was a matter that they were bored or they found it irrelevant to their life. It wasn't helpful.
0: Okay. But when you say, it, when you think about the commitment that's involved in being a member of Saddleback Church, you know, what, what is asked of people? Yeah. How do you, what's that then, beyond Mo- that most welcome?
2: Most Christian believers could not join our church because they wouldn't be willing to make the commitments we actually are a church that's built on four different covenants we actually sign covenants we have classes and covenants one is called the membership covenant another is called the spiritual growth or maturity covenant the third is a ministry covenant to use your talent ability to serve others and the fourth is called your life mission covenant and we're constantly turning up the heat you can always tell a church how a church is growing numerically just count the people and you can tell if a church is growing financially, count the offering. How do you know if, if people's lives are actually being changed? How do you know if their character is being conformed? That they're making a difference in the world and that they're they're growing spiritually. Well, one of them is is you turn up the level of commitment. And so we have a series of classes, it's very systematic, that is now called the purpose-driven paradigm. And we've now trained over a half a million pastors in 163 countries in this paradigm, and so it's done. It has nothing to do with being a mega church I can show you churches that are seven, ten people that are purpose-driven.
0: And is that also a model, um, a, the- a you know, a spiritual model? Is there a theology to that that you also find in the Bible? I mean, you've you've put it into 21st century mm-hmm. language, mm-hmm. and and you've studied um, org management techniques of mm-hmm. people like Peter Drucker who. I think is also an admirer, <clears throat> I'm sorry, who's also an admirer of yours. Um, but, but does that, does this also go back to very basic, um, you know, but fundaments of Christianity?
2: Understand. I don't want to dominate the microphone because Kay, well, I'll give her Kay, a chance to actually dominate. wrote our systematic theology course with Tom called Foundations. That, that
0: you're, that people take. And that
2: over 7,500 people in our really church have gone through her mm-hmm. systematic theology course. Hmm. But, um, Everything we do has a biblical basis. It it may look casual. It may look unstructured. But everything we do is intentional in this church. I don't think
0: it looks casual or unstructured. And,
2: And going back to the first words that Jesus said was, come and see. As he spent three and a half years with his followers, he kept raising the level of commitment Till right before he dies, he says, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross Deny yourself and follow me. And even later, right before the cross, he says something like, if you want to follow me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people go, whoa, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And it it said many people left him because they said it was too hard of a saying. Like, what in the world is he trying to say with that? And he turns around and says, disciples, are you guys going to leave me too? And they go, where are we going to go, Lord? There's nobody else who's got the words of life. But the point is, what he says at the start And what he says after he's been with them a while is he's moving them, as I quote that great theologian Bill Murray, through baby steps, baby steps. (laughs) And as they they grow, we have a, a baby step process that helps people. Part of leadership is helping people become what they don't think they could become. But as a leader, you can see they can become.
1: Okay.
0: You want to add anything to that?
1: Oh, I think he covered that okay. well. Okay. Okay. <laughs> do
0: you have a Do you have a theological uh, education? Did you go to seminary also?
1: Raised in a Christian home. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, my like I said, I was born. My dad was a pastor, born in a Christian home. Been a Christian since I was eight. Mm-hmm. Went to Christian college. We met there. Um, and um, an avid reader. And reader mm-hmm. just studied. I mm-hmm. mean, mm-hmm. yeah. No, yeah. no theological degree. Yeah. Life is probably well. My best I think we're all theologians, and we we do that. We are a theologian. In fact, that's lives. actually. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody is a theologian. You can get a degree in it, uh-huh. but everybody's a theologian. It's just what kind, you know, how good are you at uh-huh. it? You know, how What much are the raw you, materials you're working exactly, with? Exactly, and uh-huh. how much do you let your faith live out
0: uh-huh. in your life? So, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk a lot about The Purpose Driven Life just because Fine. it's out there and people have read it. Um, I, I would want to ask you this. Um, I know also with this book you had a big vision. And you had a big ambition. I mean, you didn't expect, you weren't writing something that 100 people would read, <laughs> I don't think. Um, but I wonder so, so you, you, did, you did want that and you expected it, and you, you poured a lot of this same savvy and, um, and again, you know, I'm mm-hmm. theologically grounded yeah. savvy into yeah. making the book be useful in the world. Let's put it that way. You
2: know what I did is prior to um, writing Purpose Driven Life, I went back and read all the classics. I read The Desert Fathers. Hmm. I read um, Imitation of Christ. I noticed I,
0: you mentioned Brother Lawrence, Brother one of my Lawrence, favorites. exactly. Practice of the I did.
2: I, I, I was asking a question what makes a book last 500 years? There are a lot of books you can write that next year nobody's going to remember. Them. They are so current that they're irrelevant in a year. And the only way to be uh, always relevant is to be eternal to be timeless. And so uh, one of the things I noticed in those books is there were very few stories. Now, that's hmm. the exact opposite of what well, we authors so, are told so today. Yeah. They said, tell stories, tell stories. But if I told stories in America in the early 20th, first century, well, it doesn't make sense in another country, and it doesn't make sense in 10 or 15 years. So it's almost pure didactic. Mm-hmm. It's really, in many ways, distilled wisdom. I've seen a lot of books where they just underline each phrase because it's a lot of almost one-liners put together Mm -hmm. where you're trying to get right to the point. And the interesting thing is, first, I'm not a writer. I'm a pastor, so I don't consider myself a professional writer. It took me 12 hours a day for seven months to write that book, starting at about five in the morning to five in the afternoon. Um, There's not a single new thought in purpose-driven life that hasn't been said in historic Christianity for 2,000 years, not one. I simply said it in a simple way, and in an organized way. I have an ability mm-hmm. to take a lot of ideas and synthesize them in a simple way. People go, "Oh, I get that." Okay. And so, um, when there was a fifteen-word sentence, I'd say, "Could I say it in seven?" Mm-hmm. When there was a nine-word sentence, could I say it in five?
0: What did surprise you? And I, you know, I'd ask this of both of you about. What happened to that book and
2: its <laughs> well, success? It, it was a total surprise. I mean, nobody yeah. could have imagined that.
1: Yeah, I was reading it. I read the manuscript. Yeah, uh, you know, editing it with him, and and um, and I knew when I was reading it that there was something very special about it. Um, and even though we, I mean, we've been totally blown away by the um, the amount of books that it sold and the kind of impact it's had. I knew it was a special book. I knew that there mm-hmm. was something different about it. Um, I think I've been surprised, and I think you would say the same thing, how many people who were not believers read it. He, mm-hmm. he didn't, write it, I didn't to, write it. He was writing yeah. it to, to Christians, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. To, to see so many people who were not I he didn't it as have any a textbook faith.
2: Book for our own church. Really? To see how many people? The, the, the 40 Days of Purpose campaign came before the book. We have done what we call uh, journeys in our church for years. We do 50 days of love, and we'll study about love. 50 days of faith, we'll study about faith, uh, 40 days of community, 40 days of purpose, 40 days of peace. We've done these where we have an emphasis in our church where you teach on it and then you discuss it in small groups mm-hmm. and you read it on a daily basis and you do a project together as a team. When when I only teach a truth, that's information. But when you reinforce the truth four or five ways through repetition and reinforcement, that's transformation. Okay, And so... I wrote the book as a textbook for 40 Days of Purpose, not the other way around. People often think, well, 40 Days of Purpose was some marketing plan. No, we'd been doing (laughs) these things for a long time before I ever even wrote a book. And I just said, how about a daily devotional? In fact, when I wrote the book and I delivered it to the publisher, they told me it wouldn't work.
0: Right, and and you know, and there's now Malcolm Gladwell in the piece he did about you in the New Yorker said that oh, yeah. that you sat with Sondervan. and I yeah. haven't read this story anywhere, and that yeah. they said, well, we'll do this print run, which was kind of standard, yeah. and you said, no, this is this is a hundred million uh,
2: copy book, copy book, yeah. is that right? Yeah, they sat down, and I said, and, and I didn't know that at the start. I did not know that when I was writing the book. And oh, not at so all. you
0: mean after it was done, after is when it was he felt written,
2: that and. Because I many times, when I was writing the book, I would be typing away, and I would burst into tears, and I would read something i go I would read something I think i'm not that good. I really felt inspired, hmm. and I really felt that that some that God's hand was guiding me because I would read something and go, "Man, I needed that hmm. and sometimes I pick up the book and I 'll read it, and I go, "Did I write that hmm. and i you know i don't even it was, it was an awe-inspiring experience. And when I would finished the book, I thought, there's something special okay. here. Okay. And so then in meeting with the people, I said, I think this could be a 100 million copy book, 10 million in America, and 90 million around the world. Well, it's now 30 million in America, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know how, it's in 60-something languages. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think it'll probably be in Guinness next year. It's the most translated book next to the Bible. Hmm. <laughs> but, That's but quite an accomplishment there. Publishers you go. Weekly said it's the best selling hardback in American history. I've seen history. that, yeah. And so I'm going, I'm not even a writer.
0: Right. So I want to talk to you. You've, re- you've spoken about a kind of spiritual crisis or turning point that you had after that success. It really? started with Kay. Really?
2: It started with Kay. And uh, there were three things that changed our lives, and why don't you go ahead and tell that one?
0: Was that your when you suddenly had this awakening?
1: Mm-hmm. They oh. happened at about the same time. I see. The, well, I didn't know that. they yeah, Okay. Well, so tell your story.
0: Now you had you had you were struggling with breast cancer. And I, my, I,
1: yeah, I did. But was but that the, happening before the book came out? Or no, the book came out. Yeah. And within about six to eight months after that, I picked up a magazine article that had mm-hmm. a story on AIDS in Africa, mm-hmm. and I didn't care. About AIDS in Africa. And I don't, I can only just look back and say God intended that particular day that that article would catch my attention because there's no other reason I would have read it. I didn't care. Mm-hmm. But that particular day when I read it, it, it stirred my heart and it, it broke my heart. And I realized that I didn't know anybody with AIDS and I didn't know any orphans. And mm-hmm. that was just a stunning new thought to me. But
0: do you think that there'd been an opening for you because of this, of your own illness?
1: Is I wasn't sick yet. Oh, you weren't? No, the book, that's the timeline was Rick wrote the book. About six to eight months later, yeah. I picked up this magazine article. There was a stirring in my heart. Mm-hmm. I, I said yes to God. I don't even know what I'm saying yes to God. I'm, I'm going say okay. I'm going to care. Mm-hmm. So about a year later, after I'd begun to just take these baby steps in becoming an advocate for people with HIV, I'd been to Africa twice. Mm-hmm. And right after that is when I discovered I had breast cancer. So it was about a year into my own mm-hmm. journey of, of being an advocate. It was the year that Purpose Driven
2: Life took off. It, it, Purpose Driven Life came out on 9 11 Two thousand and two, okay. one year right. exactly after nine eleven, that took it took off in the churches immediately,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but it was about a year later that all of a sudden the media or the public caught attention of it, and and, and that year when it just exploded was the year Kay got cancer. Mm-hmm.
1: Hmm. Yeah, just almost a, a year, fact, a year to almost a year. To when I day. announced the yeah. peace
2: plan in November. Of two thousand and
1: three, I started chemo the next day. She started day.
2: chemo the very next day.
1: Mm-hmm. So that was a bit of a confusing time because well, yes, I would think so. It was because here was this tremendous success that had come mm-hmm. um, our way. Um, God had had changed my thinking radically. I was embarking on a completely different journey um, than what I saw happening in the second half of my life. And then, right in the middle of that, I got breast cancer. Yeah. And, um, and I was really sick. I mean, the chemo made me really, really sick. I didn't do treatment well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it, the confusing part was just not the why. Sometimes people say, well, mm-hmm. did you ask God why? And I, I really never did say why me, but I did ask why now. The timing of it just mm-hmm. seemed so, I, I couldn't figure it out. So the, um, the lessons in that, I mean, changed our life. As you say, it, it did increase my empathy for people who are sick. It changed me completely. Mm-hmm. Um, to have had cancer. But it was your interest my attention. It was. It was the interest, well, and when, I would... When,
0: and you, he, when you first... As you say, you had your heart open, you had your mind open to this.
1: Did you get it at first? Not were at you all. with her? No. <laughs> well, I would bring him. I'd bring him, you know, CDs or tapes, and I'd say, "There's, there's, a, there's just you've got to read this about AIDS look, in Africa, about especially AIDS, uh-huh. Uh-huh. about AIDS." Uh-huh. And um, and he just kind of was not patronizing, but just kind of like, "Well, that's that's good, honey. I'm I'm really glad this is something you care about, and and yeah. I support you, and you go for Tell it. That's me, great." What was it that you? I mean, I, you know, I get the idea
0: that you kind of saw this disease, but, but you know, what, what was it that you felt you hadn't seen, you hadn't known? That- I,
1: I just, I, I lived such a comfortable life. You know, I have a comfortable life. I have a great marriage, good family. I live in a beautiful part of the country. I mean, I just had so much. And to it was that day when I read that article, it felt like that a blindfold was yanked off of that my eyes. There was eyes. this magnitude of there suffering. was a magnitude of suffering, mm-hmm. the, the enormity of of children. Suddenly, the reality, the fact that I didn't know a single orphan. Mm-hmm. I can't even I can't even say to you how profound that was to realize that I didn't know a single one, and to. to Suddenly, suddenly get it just from that
2: one to know at that
1: time that they right. were in one place. And I just couldn't fathom that. Mm-hmm. And that just began a thought process of, of it opened my eyes to look at the rest of the world. And then I didn't just see HIV, but I saw, you know, prostitution, child prostitution, yeah. child slavery, trafficking, uh, trafficking um, bonded, bonded labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just was the doorway to suddenly seeing the way that the rest of the world
2: lives. Because poverty and education... And disease and corruption. All these things go together. Mm -hmm. You can't just, once you start dealing with AIDS, which was the the catalyst to realize that, you know, by 2020, there could be 100 million people who've had AIDS. Well, that makes the Black Plague minuscule Mm -hmm. in comparison.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and and when I stop just reading about it. I had to go. I went to Africa twice in six weeks period of time, and that shattered me. I said I was, I was a seriously disturbed woman before that, and then I became a ruined woman because <laughs> I saw it with my own eyes, and it became personal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just statistics because mm-hmm. after a while, statistics are numbing. What do mm-hmm. you do with statistics? Right, and, and I think that this is a real problem
0: of our time. That yeah. We know a lot. We see lots right. of pictures. We read lots right. of articles, but most
1: people just feel overwhelmed yeah. by that. Well, but when it becomes personal, when, uh-huh. it, when, for me, suddenly... I've never
2: touched a poor person.
1: Or somebody who's sick or somebody who's mm-hmm. been ostracized or, or seen a, a child rescued from um, you know, child slavery. But suddenly when you see that and it wears a name and a face, you, mm-hmm. it's just not so easy to ignore. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't ignore it anymore. It was things I could have ignored through the other years and thought, oh, somebody's doing something about right. that. And you also in that year had resources I mean suddenly as- yes that was that was an additional thing mm-hmm. but it wasn't even so much about The resources financially that we had, because if it were just up to the people who have financial resources, only a few people would be responsible. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, when you look at the Bible, you look at Scripture, you just see a page after page after page of God's love for the poor, for the sick, for Mm -hmm. the orphan, the widow. And that puts the responsibility back on every one of us, not just those who have financial resources. Mm
2: -hmm. There were three factors. When when Kay first started talking about uh, AIDS, I, I did. I said, Babe, that's great. You supported me in the vision of Saddleback, and I'm going to support you in your Uh vision. It's not my calling. Uh My calling is to train pastors and train leaders, and I've been doing that for 27 years, and to grow a model church. But the more she talked about it, the more it started to grab my heart, and I'm going,
0: you must is, have also just been moved by, as she says, how distressed she was. This is a was. big
2: deal, uh-huh. and, she, and, and I could not ignore it. And we say the most powerful language is pillow talk. Yeah. You know, when you're laying in bed and you're talking about stuff. And and so I began to care about it. And so then I decided to go with Kay on one of her trips. She started going to Africa to learn how the African church was dealing with AIDS, because okay. they know far more about it than we do. And so I, she was going to Malawi and Mozambique and South Africa, and so I went to South Africa with her and I did what I do. I trained leaders. We did a seminar and broadcasted to 400 sites across Africa and had about 80,000 leaders in that. And I thought that that was what I was there for. But sometimes God is sneaky. Case taught me this, that he, <laughs> he gets you with a curveball. And I went with her. She was going to go study AIDS and I was going to go train leaders. After I finished that, uh, that training, I said, take me out to see a typical church. So we got in a Jeep, and we went out into the middle of the bush, and we found this uh, tent church. All they had was a tent, and it was 75 people, 50 adults, and 25 kids orphaned by AIDS. So they're caring for their own kids, plus these other kids who've lost their moms and dads. And they've grown a garden, they're feeding the kids, and they've got a few books. They're schooling the kids, and the kids are sleeping in the tent at night. And I thought, this church is doing more to help the poor than my mega church. Hmm. With so little, Hmm. they are doing so... We're not helping one orphan, and they're helping 25 with all they've got is a tent. Hmm. And that was like a knife in my heart and said, that is going to change. And it was out of that event, that night, that I came up with the idea of what we call the peace plan, Mm -hmm. and it started a whole new direction. So it was Kay's uh, awakening, and then it was that trip... And then the third was, what do you do with the stewardship of affluence and influence that God gave us from the book? You know, when you write a book and the first sentence is, it's not about you, <laughs> then you've got to figure the money is not for you mm-hmm. and the fame is not for you. Uh, if if I hadn't written it that way, I mean, we could have gone and bought an island and, and had people serve us little drinks with umbrellas in them the rest mm-hmm. of our lives, mm-hmm. but we knew this is something much bigger than us and so we're being carried along and it was a perfect storm Mm -hmm. in the cave's awakening and then me seeing it face to face and some other incidents that happened and then uh, god opening the door for us to have a platform to deal with it
0: right um so um, the my understanding is you now reverse tithe. You give 90% of your income. You've obviously made lots of money because yeah. you have not just a best-selling book, but kind of a book selling in its own category. Mm-hmm. Um, and the peace plan stands for, and a significant amount of the book revenue, I think, goes to the peace plan and also to, to your ministries and your AIDS
2: ministries.
0: Yeah, 90%. 90%. So mm-hmm. part peace is, stands for partner with congregations or plant a congregation, mm-hmm. equip servant leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, educate the next generation. It seems to me that this is a new um, model. This is, you know, this is doing in a way what you did in planting Saddleback Church. You're you're thinking about church and mm-hmm. the power of church and mm-hmm. the nature of church in a new way. You're thinking of churches, the power of churches as networks mm-hmm. to, in fact, attack global crises mm-hmm. that governments and the best meaning nonprofit organizations and uh, you know have not have failed to really fundamentally attack is that yeah.
2: well there are five spiritual giants what we call them uh, 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 global goliaths that are the biggest problems there are a lot of problems in the world that affect millions of people but there are five that affect billions and as i was traveling around the world in all these countries i kept seeing the same five problems over and over and over
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, spiritual emptiness people lack meaning and purpose in their lives they're not connected to god um, corrupt leadership, egocentric, corrupt leadership, uh, self serving. A lot of people start off with service and pretty soon it turns to serve us. How do I stay elected? How do I consolidate my power? How do I use other people to feather my nest? They start off right, but somehow there's a switch in values.
0: It's the human condition. Isn't yeah. It? I mean-
2: <laughs> and then uh, extreme poverty. Half the world lives on less than $2 a day, uh, a billion people live on less than a dollar a day. We're working in places like Rwanda where it's 68 cents a day. Mm. They grow coffee and couldn't afford a cup of Starbucks. Uh, pandemic diseases. This year, 500 million people will get malaria, a problem we solved 100 years ago. And right. right. it, it's unacceptable. It's like we don't have the leaders who will say enough's enough. We're going to stop this.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then. Um,
0: but you think that it can be stopped with churches in a way that other... Approaches I do even failed.
2: the literacy which is half the world can't functionally <laughs> can't read or write. I was speaking at Davos World Economic Forum a, a year ago, and I kept hearing about people talking about the need for public and private partnerships. And what they meant was business and government has to get together to solve these issues of poverty, disease, illiteracy, trafficking, AIDS, all these different things. And I said, "Well, you're right, but you're not completely there. You've missed the answer." because a two-legged stool will fall over, and a one-legged stool will fall over. You need three legs. There is a government role, there is a business role, and there is a faith role. There's a church role. There is the public sector, there is the profit sector, and there is the church sector. Each has something that the other can't offer. There are things only government can do. They build roads. They provide safety. There are things only business can do. They they bring capital. They, they have expertise, management skills. But the church has four or five things that government and business will never, ever have. And those things, cannot. we cannot uh, deal with these global issues until we engage what the church has. And you're
0: talking church ecumenically.
2: I'm um, talking about local churches. Right. Specific, I'm talking about The global church. Mm-hmm. The global church all around the world mm-hmm. of all denominations. Now, what the church has, when I talk about churches, first thing, universal distribution. I could take you to 10 million villages around the world. The only thing in it is a church. They don't have a school. They don't have a clinic. They don't have anything else. It is the only social structure in much of the world. Mm-hmm. You get out of the capital, there isn't a government in most of, the wor- most of the world. The church is universally there. The boots are already on the ground it's in the, the church is bigger than the United Nations. It speaks more languages than the United Nations. <laughs> it's with more people groups than the United Nations. There are 2.3 billion people in the world who claim to be followers of Christ. Now, that's all different varieties, factions, and levels of commitment. But there are 2.3 billion people who are church members. That means the church is bigger than China. Okay. It's bigger than India. In right. fact, it's bigger than China and India put together. So
0: I want to ask you how you would respond to many people. I think who would hear that mm. and and find it potentially frightening, mm-hmm. because the church, um, as you say, means many things. Mm-hmm. And I think Kay, even as you got into the AIDS crisis, you felt that the church had the church had made. Life harder. It mm. had created stigmas. You you've both talked about repentance in right. terms of the church right. on the issue of AIDS. So, so how do you you know how do you interact with people who say I get your vision as a management strategy mm. of, of of you know it's really a very powerful idea. Mm. But but we can't always count on the church to do the right thing or or not to be in a position of. Of controlling and condemning people—that's true. Can't count no, I'm business yeah. business to do
2: the right thing, or academics to right. do right. Right. So thing. the
0: answer is not that we're going to get rid of it. Not yeah. religion poisons everything. That's yeah. not what I'm saying. But how do you?
1: Yeah. How, you know, how, how would you? How do you engage in that conversation? Well, I I think that we we, we talk about what the church can bring. Yeah, the church has flaws. The church has warts. Absolutely. We've already already mentioned that. But the church brings something to the table that government and business cannot bring. And Rick's mentioned some of those. But one of the things that um, the church can bring is um, love. We do what we do because of love. We are motivated by the highest motivation there could possibly be, which is we want to serve God. We want to serve people who are suffering. And that that gives you staying power over the long run. I mean, sometimes if we've talked to Peace Corps volunteers, good-hearted people who've gone for good reasons and have tried really hard, some of the folks I have talked to have, have ended up very burned out because they didn 't have they didn 't have that spiritual perspective mm-hmm. of necessarily of why if you 're just doing it as for mankind, fellow human being to another human being that 's a good motivation, but it won 't carry you over the long haul um, and working with people is messy and it 's hard and so to have that motivation is um, something that I think that the church brings. I think the church also brings um, the moral authority to talk about. Getting rid of stigma—it's one thing for government to say everyone must stop hating each other, mm-hmm. or you must accept people with HIV. Or men must treat um, women with
2: respect. Right. And and, and well, know, the, the word dicta- tolerance is kind of a head. Yeah, trip, yeah exactly. Isn't it? You mm-hmm. can
1: say those words, but it's really only the church that has the moral authority to actually create and help people with behavior and change, And change hearts, and change hearts mm-hmm. and change. The, yeah, from the inside out.
2: You know what Kay's saying is really important about motivation. We don't care what the motivation of a person is to do good as long as they do good. We can work with anybody. For instance, some people, I've learned that when you help a country with health care, they like your country. It's good foreign policy. So some people want to do health care for other countries because of a political reason. That's not my motivation, but it's not a bad motivation when you help others, people like your country. It's not a bad motivation at all. Some people uh, help others out of a uh, profit motivation. We're going to get pharmacy drugs to them, and it'll help them, and we'll make money. I don't have a problem with that. I wish more companies would do it. I wish they would do good and make a profit at the same time. There's nothing wrong with a profit. So that's not my motivation. Mm-hmm. Some people do it out of a, a personal motivation, mm-hmm. and they have a reason. Somebody help me. Fine. Um,
0: and you also have different religious people. I mean, different religious Muslims people. who are doing exactly. it also.
2: My motivation is mm-hmm. I have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who said, Love your neighbor as yourself. So I'm commanded to do that. Now, that doesn't have to be your motivation for us to work together. And what I would say is the people who I, I spoke a couple of years ago at the Aspen Ideas Institute, and somebody said, Well, we don't want people of faith doing it with their faith motivation. Because they might want to They'll
0: proselytize, proselytize
2: mm-hmm. or whatever. And I said this: Well, if you take all the people of faith out of the equation and say, "Only secularists can do humanitarian work, you've just ruled out most of the world, because there are 2.3 billion Christians, there's a billion Muslims, there are 800,000 Hindus and 600 800 million Hindus and 600 million uh, Buddhists. The actual number of secular people is quite small outside of Manhattan and Europe. Mm-hmm. It's a very small proportion.
0: Well, let's, let's talk about one of the reasons I'm sitting here with you, which is um, the way I think um, evangelical voices have echoed in this society in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. Um,
2: they got off Kate Base. They what they got, they off, got base. off base,
0: R- right? They historically,
2: mm-hmm. what we're doing here is nothing new. For two thousand years, the churches of all kinds—Catholic, Protestant, Pentecostal, whatever—they're Orthodox have always cared for the sick, assisted the poor, okay. defended the defenseless. We were in uh, England uh, uh, a couple years ago, and I went. I was speaking in Nottingham, and I went over to the sheriff of Nottingham's castle. (laughs) You know, there actually was a sheriff of Nottingham, Mm -hmm. and there's a statue of of Robin Hood out front. And I went down into the dungeon, into the basement, and there was a diorama of what life was like in the Middle Ages. And I took a picture of a poster that said, in the Middle Ages, uh, life centered around the church. They educated the children. They cared for the sick. They taught job skills and, and mentoring uh, for uh, training they uh, taught leadership they were the center of scholasticism and, and preserved the documents and I, go, I took a picture it's everything the peace plan does what happened is about 75 years ago certain groups of believers started thinking you could answer these problems with politics right. i totally disagree mm-hmm. and even evangelical that term got co-opted as a political term
0: Especially in the last, just in the last few decades, I yes. think. Yes, mm-hmm. last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And it is not a political term. Our kingdom is not of this world. And I, in my church, have Democrats and Republicans and Independents and Libertarians, and I pastor all of them.
0: You know, um, one thing Richard Mao said to me, uh, who, he's the president of Fuller Seminary, a Christian philosopher and uh, an evangelical leader, and he was talking to me once about how... People don't understand this on the outside, but evangelical Christianity doesn't have a Vatican. It doesn't have a pope. It doesn't even have bishops. But right. there is kind of a magisterium. There are always leaders. And, I, you know, one of the most interesting things to me, I think, that's happening in our culture, I'm not sure everybody sees this, is there there is kind of a transition of that mantle of leadership. And and I think you, too, Rick and Kay Warren, are part of a new leadership. You know, I've interviewed Richard Sizek and Jim Wallace recently. It's a diverse group of evangelicals. Um, And I think what you're saying, um, when you say it got off base, you're saying that to you other issues are important to have at the center as much as anything else? Is that?
2: About at the beginning of the 20th century, Protestantism split into two wings. The Catholics never separated outreach and spiritual depth From social action Mm -hmm. they never they never went through that split but protestants did and in in one way the mainline churches said we'll take the body and the evangelical and prior to that fundamentalist churches said we will take the soul and and the typically more liberal churches theologically said we will uh we're going to care about social issues Uh, social justice, racial justice, poverty, disease, economic issues. In fact, there were a number of theologians at the beginning of the 20th century who basically said, we don't need the atonement of Jesus Christ anymore. We don't need personal salvation. All we need to do is redeem the social structures of society, and the world will be a better place. It was basically Marxism in Christian terms. And there were even organs like the Christian Century magazine that's ha- that was the, the title of hope that said the 20th century is going to be the Christian century. We're going to bring right. in you know, an era of uh, utopia. I don't know anybody who wants to look back on the 20th century and claim that's the, 20, the, mm-hmm. the Christian century. Mm-hmm. But that showed the mentality of it, we're getting better and better and progress is getting better and better. And if we just do these social changes... We don't, we don't need to worry about the other. So
0: what what, what what about the 21st century?
2: Well, in reaction to that, of course, the evangelicals said, we're just going to care about personal morality right, right. and family morality, which is right. They're both right. They are both right. Okay. And so there are people like Kay and myself and a whole host of other younger evangelical leaders who say, this is not an either or. It's not a black or white. It's a both and. They're, Jesus cares about uh, economic issues and racial equality and justice issues and things like that. And he cares about personal morality and family. Right. We believe that they're both. And so what we're doing is expanding the agenda. And as I've said publicly many times, uh, for, a long, for a few years now, we've been known for what we're against more than what we're for. You mean and we
0: I, evangelical
2: Christians. Yeah, okay. and I intend to change that. I'm tired of that. I'm for <laughs> the poor. I'm for the sick. I'm for the things Jesus cared about.
0: I wonder when you started this, when you en- landed in Saddleback Valley, if you thought that you would actually have this role <laughs> in the larger evangelical movement. Is this this kind of leadership? Is this we don't know what never.
2: our role will be tomorrow. We stopped right. trying to predict the future a long time no. ago.
1: I, you know, I mean, I always knew Rick was, that God had big plans for Rick. I met him when he was 17, and <laughs> I said he was... I'd never met anybody like him then, and I've never met anybody like him to this day. So I had a sense that God was going to do something um, through Rick, not because Rick was Mm -hmm. anything different. It's just, for whatever reason, it was God's choice where he was going to use Rick. Um, And I always saw myself as a very, very ordinary average person who didn't have very much... To offer. I always thought it was interesting that Rick decided to marry me because I thought he was this incredible superstar, and I was really um, just didn't have much at all. And you didn't um, see what I saw. No, he he's always seen potential. And uh, but you're such been, an important part of how this vision has expanded. Absolutely, as that's the part I didn't see. Right, I,
0: I didn't see that at all. And I think you know you also have been a courageous figure in terms of w- w- what you described. You're doing. You're bringing together some different traditions. You're bringing together some values that have have perhaps artificially, seem to be at different polls. Mm-hmm. But you've also, um, st- you know, one of the criticisms of, of Christian activists on AIDS has been n- not just proselytizing, but bringing, say, for example, not talking about condoms at all. So right. there, were, there were these polls where, right. where right. certain programs were all about use of condoms. Exactly. But you've really also tried to find a middle way there, and right. I suspect that you may have also ruffled some feathers with that. Oh, just a few. How did, how did, how, how did your thinking, but when, when you went into this, would you probably have been more on that? I, I just didn't have any agenda. You, you didn't know? have an agenda and you hadn't made up your agenda. mind. I didn't have agenda. It was mm-hmm.
1: just an article that captured my attention. And so for me to say yes to being an advocate, I didn't even know what it meant. I didn't even know what HIV stood for. I mean, I just knew nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so these last five years have been such a steep learning curve of learning about the disease and then learning how it spread and then learning its effects in people's lives. So I didn't go into it with um, a strategy or even a crusade of what I'm going to do or what I'm going to say. It was was really just a surrender. How did
0: you – just tell me something about your thought processes and your discernment as you thought about this issue of – personal morality, which is important to you, Absolutely. the sanctity of family, the sanctity of marriage values. You, you believe in abstinence. I do. I do. Um, but how did you kind of wrestle with also these practice, practical issue of mm-hmm. condom use, which is one of the only things well, we know can prevent HIV?
1: Well, I, I spent a lot of time thinking, talking to a lot of people, researching. Um, it wasn't just my own ideas. But it was just, it, I finally came down to the place that I could say with, um, with conviction, and 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 ask people because that's one of the first questions people will ask. Okay, so which side of the debate are you on? In right, and you had to take a side. You had to take a side. And, aside. Yeah. and what I've said, yeah. but I believe with my whole heart, is who could ever argue that saving sex for marriage is not a wonderful protection against HIV and a host of other sexually transmitted diseases, right. as well as. Pregnancy. Who could argue that, you know, that that is not the the best way to protect yourself from getting HIV? Who could ever argue that being faithful in a marriage, if if a husband and wife are faithful to each other, how could anybody say that's not a protection? And how could anybody say that using a condom correctly every time consistently isn't a protection against HIV? So to me, it really wasn't um, an either or. It was um, they all three are effective, mm-hmm. and for me, it's why not use the ones I, I really particularly concentrate on on A and B because I really believe abstinence and yeah, and yeah, mm-hmm. because of my beliefs in the Bible of sexual purity and um, and believing that that's the absolute best protection for people. So why not go for the goal? Why not go for the best? And at the same time, I'm also cognizant of the fact that not everybody's going to do that, and not everybody even has that as an opportunity. Um, Gender violence women are the recipients of violence every right. day where they they are have very few choices, and so sometimes um, in an ideal world we don 't live in an ideal world we live in a world where sometimes things are broken so i 'm not about to say well there isn 't this other method that also can be We're protection in saving lives, if it's used, anyway, do it 's used if right. it 's used correctly and that's and consistently a right, yeah. and so that to me there 's no I don't have any, um, there's no contradiction between uh-huh. those.
2: What we've found, though, is that the voice of reason gets attacked from the extremes on every side. Uh-huh. And so we, we don't, you know, if we were simply very conservative, we would only have one set of critics, liberals. Right. If, if, on the other hand, we were liberal in our, in our moral views, we would only have one set of critics, uh, you know, very fundamental or conservative people. But the fact is, when you try to stake out a middle road, which we believe is what Jesus did. Jesus had values, had rules, had, had commandments that he says, this is the way to do it. But he also said, I want to see mercy. And he all, all, also protected the dignity of people hmm. and always defended their dignity. Of all people, of all all people. people. sinners
0: and outcasts and as well when, as the
2: faithful. When, and, and actually he was called the friend of sinners. I considered that to be a good reputation. So, I'd are, love
1: to have that on my tombstone. I would too. Stay <laughs> warm, friend of souls. <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean, friend, of, friend of. Since people. I'm the chief of right. them, oh. exactly.
1: Right. Well, and I mean, this
0: is a good segue to where I wanted to go next. You know, in contrast to that, you know, Rick, you are known as a friend to a lot of very powerful people now. Um, Rupert Murdoch, who also is your publisher, you've said that you're his pastor. Um, uh, George well, W. A Bush. A lot of people have well, said that. You don't even p- go to church. <laughs> Time magazine has said you're America's pastor. Yeah. I want to ask you what, um, what spiritual temptations or compromises come with that new role that you have um, of being well, influential. Well, whenever people role. ask me,
2: what can I pray for you? I always tell them, pray three things. Pray for integrity, pray for humility, and pray for generosity. Because they are the opposite of the three temptations that affect not just every person, but particularly affect every leader. Uh, th- these are the three temptations that were in the garden of eden they're the three temptations that jesus handled they're the three temptations moses handled it is the temp- the the bible calls them the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life the lust of the flesh is the temptation to feel i deserve to feel good and it's more than sex it could be food it could be drugs it's anything i deserve to feel good i'm going mm-hmm. to use my power to make me feel good like when they said, Jesus, why don't you turn these stones to bread? Use your ability, your talent to, to, to serve yourself. Then there, That's the temptation to, to feel. Then the lust of the eyes is the temptation to have. I see it and I want it. And that, that's uh, it's greed. And then the pride of life is the temptation to be. I want people to worship me. I uh-huh. want people to re, uh, envy me. And this is passion, possession, and position. Well, the antidote to those three are humility, generosity, and integrity. And if you build your life on those three, then you're not going to fall for the common things that cause people to stumble. I actually have a file that I've kept now for over 30 years of ministry. And every time a a Christian leader stumbles in the area of money Mm -hmm. or sex or pride, and there's an article on them, I cut it out and I throw it in that file. And about mm, every few months, I will go back and I read through that file just to put the fear of God in me.
0: <laughs> but you know, let's talk about something more subtle. You know, not that you would that you would have a great fall.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, you do. You have a great marriage. You yeah. you are a healthy person. I think you've worked hard at that of being yeah. p- balanced inside. But you don't accomplish great things. You don't write the best selling one of the best selling books in history mm-hmm. without an ego, mm-hmm. without. Ambition, you know, you have a personal power as well. Um, I don't know. Well, what the, are, what's the kind when, of nuanced struggle? When,
2: when uh, the book became such a big success, and I started getting calls to speak at,
0: everywhere at Davos, yeah, right?
2: United Nations, yeah. Congress, yeah. whatever.
0: I see a Pentagon over yeah, there.
2: Oxford, yeah. Cambridge, Harvard, the things. Like, well, all of a sudden, um, I began to say, "What am I supposed to do with the money? And what am I supposed to do with the the uh, the fame?" And based on two passages of scripture, 1 Corinthians 9, we made some decisions of what to do with the money. Basically, it was to give it all away. I don't take a salary from Saddleback. In fact, I added up all the church had paid me in 25 years, and we gave mm-hmm. it all back. That was actually the easy part. The hard part was, what do I do with this notoriety? What do I do with these phone calls? Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when literally world leaders are calling and right. on a regular basis. And I found a passage of scripture called Psalm 72. And Psalm 72 is Solomon's prayer for more influence. Now, when he wrote this psalm, he was the wisest man in the world, the wealthiest man in the world, and the leader of Israel at its pentacle, its apex Mm -hmm. of power. And yet in this psalm, he says, God, I want you to make me famous. It sounds completely self-centered. I want you to bless me. I want you to spread the fame of my name to many countries. I want you to give me power and bless me until you read the motivation behind it. And he says, so that the king may support the widow and orphan, care for the defenseless, speak up for the oppressed, uh, defend the immigrant, the foreigner, uh, those in prison. Uh, assist the poor and care for the sick. And, and basically, he, he mentions all the marginalized of society. Today, mm-hmm. he talk about uh, the elderly, uh, the mentally handicapped. Right. Those on the phrase. And, and to me, out of that passage, it said, the purpose of influence is to speak up for those who have no influence. Most people don't have the spiritual maturity to handle power, they think it's for their benefit. It is not. Mm-hmm. The purpose is to benefit others.
0: But when you are. Um, being a friend or spiritual advisor mm-hmm. to a Rupert Murdoch, to a mm-hmm. George W. Bush, to several of the candidates who are running for president now, are you able to be an uncomfortable presence to them to challenge them the way you challenge your, your congregation?
2: I don't have any problem speaking the truth to power. I've actually sat with presidents in Africa, and when we were getting ready to come in and start the peace plan, and, and my first question is, are you going to rip me off? And they say, what do you mean? I say, well, if you're corrupt, you need to tell me because you really don't want me in your country because I bring a lot of exposure. And if you are corrupt, I will expose it. And so it would be better for you if you're going to just take the money and put in a Swiss bank account. You don't want me in your country. Okay. So I don't have a problem. I I can't give you details, but I want to tell you, I have said some things that Kay said, you said what? to that world leader. And I said, well, since I have you on the phone, I'd like to just tell you this. And, uh, but my, my, I never ever talk about policy. That is not my role. I am not a politician and I'm not a policy advisor. I'm a pastor. And so I'm going to deal with your character, your integrity, your family, your stress level, your honesty, uh, the issue I, I'm always dealing I am I do not pretend that I'm a, a consultant to power okay I am a pastor to these people only at their invitation
0: okay I'm aware that we're running out of time can I ask one more question okay because I'm not sure exactly when we started is I left it your last
1: question.
0: okay this is my last question okay because yeah, I have a plane I know, I know, know. I know I know yeah. well let me ask you this first I want to ask both of you you know to talk just a little bit about how your theology continues to deepen and expand and change because you have had so many experiences in the last years that you never predicted that have taken you to new places, to global crises. So, you know, Kay, I would just ask you first, you know, working with people with HIV, which is not just an issue of homosexuality, Mm -hmm. but you have then encountered many people Mm -hmm. um, who have encountered this by way of sexuality, Mm -hmm. heterosexual and homosexual. Um, how How has your religious understanding of that, Changed either in terms of how you think about homosexuality or the or the proper Christian response to that. How has this changed you?
1: Um, um, I think that I growing up in a very conservative. Um, 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 let me start over. Growing up in a very conservative. Um, gosh, I'm having to, to No yeah. denomination. as oh. oh, word. I was, Southern Baptist. It, yeah, you Southern up, Baptist. Yeah, it so it was. was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, so I didn't even know the I didn't even hear the word homosexual, I don't think, until I was well, in college. Well, I mean, our culture. Yeah, it, is, it just wasn't. It yeah. was in the 70s, and it wasn't. No. And so I think I grew up pretty typical of a lot of people being afraid of people who are gay, and, um, judgmental, didn't want to be near them, um, just incredibly uncomfortable. And in the last five years, I think what I've, where I've come to is, is understanding God's deep love for every person he has made. That has been something that has been a long journey for me to understand. And to put myself in the same category of needing Jesus, I think that I grew up putting people in categories as though I was okay and other people were not. And to understand the depth of my own brokenness, the depth of my own longing to really be close to God, to know that I have a home, that I have a place where my soul can rest, where there's somebody who accepts me, who loves me passionately, who will never stop. Thinking about me from the day I was conceived till the day I meet him face to face, and wanting others to have that same Mm. relationship, Mm. and so wanting others to have that has caused me to move across boundaries that my tradition, my culture, my faith might have said, "No, you can't go there," and and to to really try to look at at people in the same way that that Jesus did, and when we're talking about Jesus was a friend of sinners, and I said, "I'm the chief. I'm not exaggerating. I see myself that way. I know." I know the ugliness in my own heart. And so for me to stand and tell somebody else, you are not worthy of Jesus Christ. What I need to understand that the finger I'm pointing at them, there are three pointing back at me. I'm not worthy. Mm. And so by his grace and his mercy, he has accepted me. How could I not offer that to somebody else? Mm. So that's been a huge um, growth for me to to bring my brokenness to the Lord and let him work on me and to invite others to bring their brokenness to the Lord, whatever it is, um, and know that he will work in their hearts as they surrender to him. Mm -hmm.
0: And, Rick, I want to ask you a line like this in The Purpose Driven Life. Because God made you for a reason, he also decided when you would be born and how long you would live. He planned the days of your life in advance, choosing the exact time of your birth and death. In the last few years, you've met people in Rwanda who've lived their entire lives in poverty and genocide. You know, who've had to struggle just to survive with body and spirit intact. How has that what has that done to this theology of yours? How has that expanded or changed your understanding of God or
2: the reason there are hungry people in the world, there are suffering people in the world, is because of our own selfishness. What do I say to a woman in Sudan holding a baby who's dying of lack of water? The only thing I can say is I'm sorry. I am sorry. Why did I not get here sooner? Uh, it is our own selfishness. There's plenty of food in the world. There's plenty of water in the world. It, it, it has nothing to do when I say, God, why don't you do something about this? God is saying to you, well, I'm asking you the same question. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you do something about it? God is saying, why don't you do something about it? And the theological journey for me has been the more I am fascinated with Jesus Christ, I'm not, I don't just believe he's the savior of the world, the son of God, died for our sins, the way to heaven. I am fascinated that he told us not just how to live, but how to do it all. Every part. Of, I have found that he is the answer to so many different areas of life. And I'm more convinced of it than ever. I talk to him just like I talk to you every day. I've had a walking relation, working relationship, working relationship with him. So how would he?
0: How would that? What you're saying? Just yeah. you know, apply that to this person you meet in Sudan who, who, who doesn't well, the have water first thing, the refugee
1: camp because I think that's a really
2: uh, 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 that's a good point. Yeah, I recently was invited to speak at a refugee camp in Rwanda. Of how many refugees was it?
1: Eighteen thousand. Eighteen
2: thousand wow. who've been displaced from Congo because of the war that's going on there. They've lived there eleven years. Eleven years. And their whole desire is to go back home. They're living in temporary shelter. And I stood up in front of them. What do you say to people who've been homeless for 11 years? Well, you say, everybody's homeless. The fact is, no home is permanent. You've lived many places. I've lived many places. And the Bible teaches this is not our permanent home. Fortunately, if I didn't believe that there's more to life than here and now, I would be in despair. I really would, because there are many things that there just isn't justice. Evil gets away with it, selfishness gets away with it, and one day God is going to settle the score, and justice will be made. And the fortunate thing is, yes, there are people who are suffering, and we must do everything we can to that. and And I lay awake at night thinking about that, but on the other hand, I know that one day that suffering is going to be ended. And there is a hope, and we have a hope in Christ. And that is a hope. One of the things that the church has that 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 a lot of people in the world don't have is we believe in evil. Mm-hmm. We really do believe in and evil. naming evil. Huh? Naming evil. And naming evil. And we see, I don't have a problem saying it's just a lack of education. Terrorism is evil. And when a child is taught to go blow themselves up, that's, by the way, that's not martyrdom. Martyrdom is when... You kill me because I won't renounce my faith. Martyrdom is not when I blow you up. That's murder, not martyrdom. But the bottom line is, is that I believe the hope of the world is Jesus Christ working through his church. And I'm more convinced of that than ever before. And we will work with governments and businesses and non believers and atheists and gays and anybody who wants to work who says, let's make this a better place.
0: Okay. Rick and Kay Warren, thank you so much. Thank thanks. you. Yeah, thanks, Christopher. Oh, this has been great. Thank you for All
2: right. Thank, thank you, you guys. And hope that helps. I'll <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, Jack. Thank you. So it's All great right. to meet yeah, you.
1: Yeah, you. Excuse too. me for running. Have fun. Thanks. thanks. thanks nice to meet you. You know, she's thanks coming so back
2: so from good. New York as I'm flying out. So we're. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to right the Clinton Global Initiative and some other meetings that I've got back there. So she comes back just as I'm leaving. So. You're going with
1: Baby, it. we're in the same no, car. That's not a bad life.
2: Oh, we are. Yeah. I need to thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank I'm you like, so and we're in the same <laughs> car. <laughs> going now. <laughs> we get your card? Safe uh, thank no, you so chair. much. You know there's
1: what? There's I, there's I don't
2: have you.
0: a card. I will send Give you. We'll mine. be thank sending you, send you, a, you. A, Okay. Yeah, we'll be sending, okay, sending you a series. Good. Fantastic,
2: you. guys. Thank you.